One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I think a writer has either to suppress or endure the first book. Hello, writers. Welcome back to Write Off, the podcast about writing rejection in all its forms, from self-doubt to books not selling. I'm your host, Francesca Steele, a journalist and writer based in London. And if you want to know more about my own experience with writing rejection, you can hear about that in the first season. Last year, Alan Garner became the oldest person ever to be shortlisted for the Booker Prize at the age of 87 for his novel, Treacle Walker. Alan has been writing novels and other books for more than 60 years, many of them rooted in the folklore and mythology of Cheshire, where he's from. His first novel, The Weird Stone of Brisingerman, had people calling him the new Tolkien, and he received an OBE in 2001 for services to literature. Among Alan's books is his incredible memoir, Where Shall We Run To?, in which he describes his childhood. He was a very sick child and spent days, weeks, staring at the wall of his bedroom during the Second World War, thinking and dreaming, and perhaps sowing the seeds of becoming an author years later. But he also describes the pain of being cast out of his community when he got into grammar school, a rejection that still seems to pain him today, and which feeds into the type of writing that he does. Alan has an unusual writing process that often involves years of what he calls gestation, where he barely writes at all, waiting for the subconscious part of the brain to come up with the goods. And I think there's something to learn from this, that a writer's work really isn't all done at the desk, and that patience isn't just a virtue, but a necessity. I love chatting to Alan about writing swear words on the first manuscripts he was thoroughly dissatisfied with, thinking T.S. Eliot's Wasteland was a load of rubbish, and giving up academia to write, even when he had no idea whether he'd be any good. Here's Alan. I didn't want to be an academic. It it was a kind of automatic process. I'd moved smoothly through primary school, grammar school, to Oxford, and just assumed that I was going to spend the rest of my life there reading Latin and Greek. And... I never had a conscious desire to write, but there came a time when I started to feel childish, negative, I don't want feelings. I don't like this. I don't want to do that. Why should I do that? 
I'm not happy. Uh, nothing positive. And then it it happened. It, it really was an electric light bulb moment. I was sitting, waiting for a bus. I was sitting on a tree stump and it just lit up in my head. Uh, instead of spending my life analysing what other people had written, it would be much more interesting to uh, write something myself. Now, that's how it felt, but I, over the years, I developed a theory which works for me, and that is that writers are born. And what had been happening was that the writer in me had started to waken up and stay uh, and say, uh, oh, don't spend the rest of your life worrying about what other people have done. Do it yourself. Mm. That's my rationalisation. When do you remember first writing? I, I know I've read of you writing some T.S. Eliot parody at school, but I'm not sure whether you count that as having been your first foray into creative writing exactly. No, uh, I was disgusted when I got into the sixth form at school and thought I was going to spend the whole of my time um, reading Latin and Greek and then found I had to do English once a week. <laughs> and um, we were invited to read The Wasteland. And I thought, this is a load of rubbish. And then <laughs> at the end of that, uh, we were invited to see if we could write something ourselves. And I was in high dudgeon because this wasn't what I'd come to school to do. So I went away and thought, I'm not going to do it. And I thought, well, even though you're a prefect, Helen, you could still get into a lot of trouble if you don't do it. So I sat down and I wrote a pastiche and it was put into the school magazine without my permission. And it's an extraordinary school, Manchester Grammar School. And there was a... No real English department there. English was unspokenly for people who couldn't do literature in a foreign language. Ha, huh, that's so interesting. <laughs> yeah, but that, that was then, that was the 1950s. But there were extraordinarily good teachers of English. And one of them, who spoke to me only once in the seven years I was there, he was a tiny man and I was six foot two. And we met in the corridor. He was always walking at a high speed. And as he passed by me, he said, read your piece, genuine Elliotian overtones. <laughs> <laughs> and was gone. That was 1951. He never spoke to me again until years later. I happened to be in the school in 1958. And the Owl Service had just got the Carnegie Medal. And he zoomed towards me, didn't slow down. As he went past, he said, what did I tell you? <laughs> so that, that's the amount of encouragement I had. <laughs> I mean, do, do you count, when you look back on your creative writing life, which now is extremely long, do, do you count that as having been kind of dabbling in in? writing yourself or when you wrote The Weird Stone of Brisingham which is went on to be your first novel your first published novel did you feel like you were starting from scratch as it were after this light bulb moment oh yes the light bulb moment was fine and then the next bit which wasn't a light bulb was 
so what are you going to write? And the only thing I really knew was my family background, because uh, it was a very deep-rooted, narrow, rural culture, mm -hmm. uh, occupying the same square mile of land. As far as I can tell uh, from the documents, certainly back to 1592. And if you're a peasant in 1592, you've probably been there for longer than that. So uh, what I did know was the landscape. What I didn't know was human nature, human dialogue, how people spoke, how they behaved. So I think a writer has either to suppress or endure a first book, but with all its strengths and weaknesses, it has endured. It's never been out of print. And I know now that its weakness was I couldn't handle character, and its strength was I had a deep understanding at an emotional and inherited level, and also at an academic level, of that landscape. And that energy is what drives the book. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, it is a very energetic, passionate book. I always think you can really feel as a reader how much fun the writer is having. And I think you can feel that you have a lot of fun and excite excitement over the, the landscape that you're writing about in that well, book. It, it was more excitement than fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, let's talk about that in a minute. I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about that sort of starting point, because forgive me for saying this, but one might argue that it's actually quite arrogant to have never written creatively. And then, I mean, you abandoned your degree to go off and do this, didn't you? You, you left yeah. Oxford, I think, after a year and, and went back home to Audley Edge in Cheshire and, and, um, and started writing. How did you know that you would be any good? Because... <laughs> you were sort of getting off this trajectory that you mentioned earlier, that you'd sort of been passively on. But this is quite an active move to do something that's arguably quite hard. And yes, how did you sort of, how did you know that you would be good at it? I didn't, but I knew that uh, if I didn't put myself in an impossible position, I'd find an easy way out and do neither one thing nor the other. I had to put myself in such a position that the only way to survive was to succeed, which took a while. It's still, <laughs> still going on. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can say at this point that you have succeeded. Before we get into the nitty gritty of writing Weirdstone, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your childhood. You obviously have written an autobiography, um, Where Should We Run To? And in that, you you document several things, including your having been very ill as a child. You were in hospital quite extensively with meningitis, I think, and diphtheria, pneumonia, and various things. And in that time, actually, you, you talk about learning to read, very young age, and in hospital from comic books and so on. Mm -hmm. What do you think that time period taught you about storytelling? Not necessarily writing, but storytelling. Well, my maternal grandmother was a... Uh a Victorian ex-pupil teacher, and she used to tell me fairy tales and uh, folk tales, and I latched on to those. Uh, there was also a psychological aspect, which I, of course, I wasn't aware of. I 
missed more than 50% of my primary school years. I was, I was an only child. There was a war on. And so I spent more than half that time lying in bed, staring at a, a ceiling with windows that had cheesecloth over them in case a bomb went off. And that was a kind of um, psychological isolation that gave me unconsciously the choice of surviving or not surviving. That's how I rationalise it. Mm. Mm. And I, to I told myself stories. And do you think that that urge to be a writer later was born then? And I suppose, I suppose born in a, a sort of boredom, as you say, psychological isolation. Do you think without that you would have gone on to have this urge to write? I think I would have had that urge to write uh, because when people say come to me and, and say they want advice, I, I cut across that straight away. I say, don't worry. If you're a writer nothing will stop you. And if you are not a writer, nothing can make you. <laughs> that saves me from getting into difficult uh, conversations. And I also think it's, it's uh, a fairly truthful state of affairs. Mm, that people will just sort of get on with it. Yeah. So going back to Weirdstone, you you mentioned just before that it took a while. So how many years did it did it take you to write that first book? It took me two years. Two years to write, a year to find a publisher, a year to get it ready, and then we were off, 1960. And uh, because I'm aware in part of what has happened to publishing since then, my story, in a way, is of historical importance rather than practical advice, because uh, in those days, the relationship was between the writer and the publisher, and I'd been published for 15 years and written five of the 10 novels I've written when my editor advised me to get an agent. And I'd already... <laughs> I, I, I'd already told an agent four times that I wasn't very interested because I was very happy where I was. So the, the, the world has gone completely the other way now. Yes, yes, you're very much advised to get an agent first. Indeed, it's very, very difficult to get published without an agent. Mm. But so you, you wrote the book, and I think you referred to it earlier as not necessarily having been fun. T tell me about that experience. You went home to Audley Edge. You had this idea to put together some of the local mythology around the sleeping nights and that your grandfather had told you, because of course you used to play on the edge in El Alderley, didn't you, mm. as a child? Um, and then you add these Welsh and Norse mythology things and the classics and various other things. What was that process like for you, putting together all those things and, and writing for the first time? Was it, was it tricky? It was tricky because it was the first time but the process has remained the same throughout. I wait for the story to arrive. Now, it, it doesn't arrive. So here's another theory of mine, which holds for me. And that is that, as far as I'm concerned, the intellect, which is a very fine editor, had 
no creative ideas in its existence, that it's something to do with the unconscious part of the brain. And because of my weird childhood, where I kept switching myself off by staring at the ceiling, I think my that division between the, if we let's say the intellect and the uh, non-intellectual side of the brain became separated at quite an early age. Then I went from that to being uh, a pure academic uh, for many years, which let the other part of me uh, get on with it until it said one day at that tree stump, you're on the wrong train. I mean, it's, that is so interesting. And I, I can see this in your writing, this really, this very childlike voice is very, very strong. I mean, even in your autobiography, it's so it's so much fun to read because it's, it, it really, I don't think I've read an autobiography where the, where the, with the child voice seems so present. I mean, I really felt like I was talking to my own children or something, the, the sort of way that you jump from thought to thought and it's it's wonderful. So it's, it's interesting that you say that it's almost like your childlike brain is sort of doing the, doing the writing for you in mm-hmm. some ways. I wonder whether the grown-up brain sometimes interrupts that. Do you, do you find when you're writing or when you're thinking of the story or at any point in the process that that grown up or editor or whichever it is jumps in occasionally and says, Hey, is that really right? What you're doing there? He's allowed in at the end. (laughs) (laughs) But does he try, does he try to get in before? No, the, um, the, the memoir, where should we run to is an interesting event because I was involved with Manchester university in a two year examination of every aspect of Alderley Edge and uh, I took a large part in the collection of oral history because I knew where the bodies were I knew who knew was what was what and so after a gap of uh, 1946 to 1996 I didn't meet any of my former uh, school friends from the primary school. Then when we met as adults, my job was to go in there and collect memories and record them. I found that while we all had a memory of a given event, when it came to recording it, we all had different memories of what happened. Mm. And I found that intellectually fascinating. And it made me realize that oral history were, and was as uh, inaccurate as written history. And so, having been involved for two years with the university on collecting academic material, I was left over in, in um, carpentry terms with a lot of offcuts. Things that I hadn't recorded that had been part of conversations around the recordings Mm. and I felt that these things needed to be put together so where should we run to is genuine and it's true as I remembered it but I don't guarantee that you could have filmed everything that I described (laughs) 
<laughs> of course. Well, I think that's your prerogative as a memoirist. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also in that book, you have a moment that in many ways the book springs off, which is where you get into Manchester Grammar School yeah. and a friend's mother says to you something like, well, you're not going to want to talk to us anymore now, are you, Alan? And, and I know you've said at other points that that sort of othering, that sort of rejection from the place of your early childhood played out in your own family as well. Can you tell me a little bit about that? And also, I wonder whether that that sense of having been othered was one of the things that that made you want to write about those things when you did return there, and in a way sort of reclaiming your right to that, to that childhood and to that world. Almost certainly, because at that moment when my best friend's mother uh, said what she said is one of the most hurtful memories I have in the whole of my life. Yes. Uh, and then the whole business of the 11 plus and uh, secondary education uh, happened. And if it had been a unique event, it would have been of no interest. But I find it still going on that the uh, cost of a secondary education for somebody who comes from a family with no secondary education is quite high. And it takes this form. <laughs> Let me make a light joke of it because it was quite funny in retrospect. I'd always been the, the clever one. And then it came about that Alan was going to get an education. But I didn't realise that that was seen as a three-dimensional object, like Alan is going to get a car or a brick. <laughs> so when I started to come home excited by irregular verbs, <laughs> it changed the atmosphere somewhat. Yes. And I, I soon learned to keep my mouth shut. And um, to put it into a broader social scale, which is almost universal in this country, it is that the child from that kind of background becomes a pariah mm. for the family and has to cope with that and has several choices to make. And in the particular uh, social context of Alderley Edge in the 1950s, the only alternative was a bizarre, uneducated middle class who um, didn't like me either. So the only place I was allowed to be me was at school, mm. where I mm. was very happy, which, of course, pushed me into the academic frame of mind. Yes. But then in the end, you've come all the way back and, and become part of your, yeah. your, your childhood location again. In, in the paragraph where you mentioned that story about your, your friend's mother, you say, I felt something go and not come back. What, what precisely did you mean by that? I've been part of a gang all my life, and I was no longer in the gang, mm. period. Did you feel that something come back the longer you lived in Alderley Edge again and wrote about it and its history? Well, I, 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 don't, I don't live in Alderley Edge. I effectively left Alderley Edge in 1950. 53, when I started National Service, from there to Oxford, came back briefly 
realized that I needed to have a, an isolated environment in which to discover whether or not I could write, and so moved six miles, which made my father purse his lips. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you moved back to Cheshire. So were your parents alive when Weirdstone was published? What oh, did yes. they what did they think of it and your going on to sort of make famous all this local mythology? I don't know. Uh, my mother was very reticent on the subject, and my father was. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Not very verbal, uh, but when he was verbal, he was a one liner. And so there would be enormous silences, and then he'd say something very apt. And we had an uneasy relationship for several years until I wrote Stonebrook Quartet, um, which was based on oral memory of stories I'd heard uh, within my father's family as a small child over the years. And I put them together. And because, although the names were changed, they were about real people, I wanted to get my father's approval. Because if I got anything wrong, I knew that he would be very upset and angry, and I wouldn't want that. So once I got that right, so that was 1970, it was over by 1977, we had a a good relationship again. We never had a bad relationship. It was just uh, a, a failure to find common ground. Mm. Uh, which presumably widened when you were away. And yeah. and yeah. So going back to the writing, you mentioned earlier something about it, it not necessarily being fun, I think is what you said. What, what do you how do you find the writing process and what is the hardest part of it for you the hardest part of it is not to write that's why it was not fun to begin with because i started to write and after i think about four to six pages i looked at what i'd written and i thought good heavens you've been educated in some of the finest literature the world has ever known and you produce this rubbish <laughs> so I put two lines through it and a mild obscenity 
and start it again. And to find out what I wrote, you'd have to go to the Bodleian Library. <laughs> right. Uh, and and that, that happened over and over and over again. And The Moon of Gomrath, the second novel, had nine complete resyncs. Uh, by resync, I mean resetting, replotting. And I think if there is a smooth smooth-ish line, a graph, if you like, over the years, I've learned not to force it. In other words, I, I learned that a, a writer's life is not paid uh, by the hour or from nine to five. <laughs> it happens. And when it happens, if you don't go with it, you're finished. And if you do go with it, you've got a chance. When you're sort of trying to let it happen and you're not and you're trying not to force it. So let's say you have one of those drafts and it's not working and you know you need to redraft or replot or rethink in some way. What do you do so that to ensure that you aren't forcing it? Do you leave and go for a walk or do you have I, a sort of strategy? I I, I watch uh, B movies. I uh, <laughs> I, I look at the fire, I go to bed, I sleep for long periods. And when it reaches a point where I'm sleeping the clock round, I know that I'm nearly there. And then it, start, it starts to come. And I don't, I don't question it. I write it down and, keep, and then wait. Uh, it's not a steady process. Um, the process is rather like a dripping tap. <laughs> You get what you get, and it no more comes. And then gradually, uh, the time between the drips gets shorter, and the amount of water delivered at each each drip gets longer. Yes. Until at the very end, the last week, uh, it's the uh, romantic view of the inspired artist. In other words, I'm impossible to live with, and all I'm doing is writing. <laughs> but it, it's, it's like taking dictation mm. I don't question it until I've stopped and then I go back and I'm ruthless absolutely ruthless mm. and the pattern that's emerged over the 66 years I've been writing and the 62 years I've been published is that the, um, the staring into the fire the B-movie period, gets longer and longer and the writing gets shorter and shorter and the revision requires less and less. That's so, so interesting. I'm fascinated by this B-movie inclusion. <laughs> I want to know how this is helping. Um, oh, yes, because a lot of, a lot of um, let, let's say B-movies, but it, ha it happens in writing too, because the, the only writer friend I ever had was Rosemary Sutcliffe. And... I can't talk about writing with other writers. I don't want to. Uh, a writer I did know who lived uh, in the hills above Oldham had a success. He was a playwright. He went to London and came back after a year because he said he'd talked four plays to death. <laughs> the, the strength for me in the discipline of writing is not to talk about it. Yeah. Now, this yeah. doesn't work for everybody. I'm not laying down a law. I'm not telling anybody how to write. 
I'm describing how I write. Yeah, I, I think it makes sense from what you've described, because what you're describing is a process of, and I think what you've described about the B-movies and the fire and everything else is also in pursuit of this. You're trying to access that sort of lizard child brain, aren't you? And it's almost like hypnosis. You're trying to remove these obstacles yes, that are yes. um, sort of adult and, and intellectual and interfering. Um, and talking is one of those is, is more part of that world, isn't it? So Well, that's how I got to the B movie, because the only writer I've ever talked to about writing was Rosemary Sutcliffe. Mm. And uh, I asked her where she uh, got so much energy for her historical novels from. And she said, watching B movies. <laughs> so, you see, all, writers steal from each other. Never tell a writer a good story or a good idea because it will be stolen. <laughs> I mean, a lot of your books have taken you quite a while to write. You know, some of them have taken you nine years to write. Um, that drip, drip, drip effect that you mentioned, yeah. when when it's nine years, is, is it hard? Is it hard to, even though you know your own process, is it hard to let it happen when it's taking such a long time? No, no, I've, I've learned to recognise it. If it has happened that way at the beginning... Uh, I don't know what would have happened, but it doesn't bother me uh, anymore. It's just the way my mind works. And I, I would never give that as advice to uh, anybody. Mm. Because every, every writer, uh, I think, is different. We have to come at it a different way, mm. our own way. I know you've said before that you don't believe in writer's block, but that you do think there's something you call writer's impatience. What do you mean by that? It's another way of saying what I've just said. Uh, if I try to rush it, it won't come. It'll actually delay the thing. And if I do write anything down, it'll have to be rejected. And that is, that is the, again, the line on the graph is over the decades... When it comes, it comes in a cleaner and cleaner form with less and less revision needed at the end. Mm. And uh, I've only been giving you averages. So 66 years writing 10 novels, that's an easy average to make, 6.6 years. But um, the longest strandloper was 12 years. Oh, wow. Are you that, keeping that story in your head sort of all the time more or less over those 12 years yeah I have a very patient family <laughs> <laughs> yes I was going to ask about your your family because it can be difficult to live with writers famously oh, and um it's hell <laughs> if I'm the child it doesn't go away <laughs> do you draw inspiration or did did you when your children were smaller, did you draw inspiration from them for your books? Which I know you're always keen to say aren't for children necessarily, but they do have these childlike qualities sometimes and do, you know, famously appeal to children, some of them anyway. So I wonder if you no. drew inspiration from them. No, no, not well, not consciously. There will be the, I mean, every family has the, the sort of family in joke or some child says something absolutely hilarious. Uh, and I've occasionally pinched things like that, but I've never looked at a child in a beady way 
um, and sort of willed them to let me into their mind. No, no, no. <laughs> have you ever thrown out, do you throw much stuff out? And have you ever thrown out a whole manuscript? No, no. So you, when you get your idea, you do redraft sometimes or you used to more, but you just keep it the same idea until it works. If by draft you mean the whole manuscript, no, the, the sections get re rewritten. Mm -hmm. It's a slow, it is a gestation mm. period. Uh, if you said to me, write me a hundred words in 10 minutes or I'll shoot you, I'll say, no, wait, but, uh, <laughs> you know, shoot me now. But on, at the other end of the process, in the, in the last weeks of writing a novel, if you say, quick, quick, the house is on fire, I say, shut up, <laughs> I'm busy. So in that gestation period, do you plan? And I wanted to ask about this in, with particular reference to Treacle Walker, um, which you obviously recently had shortlisted for the Booker. Um, and it's, it's all, I mean, elements of it are almost sort of like a fever dream, both in, both in its narrative and in the way it's written. But it is also quite purposeful and certainly its ending feels feels aimed for. So, yeah, I wonder, I wonder how much you plan something like that in advance, either just in your head or written down. Well, it doesn't happen cleanly all the time. But a pattern that has developed is that I get into the book a, a few chapters, a few thousand words, and then... One of the pictures I see doesn't mean anything. Uh, and the words that have been spoken don't mean anything. But I've learned to write them down and forget them. Because here is the really interesting bit for me. It's always the end of the book. And I don't know what it means. Mm. Which, uh, being my own critic, I think suggests that those long periods of not doing anything is when the whole book is forming and then it delivers itself and I have had the well I always have the panic with the exception of Treacle Walker of having this ending which I don't understand but I've written it down and then as the book accelerates and takes off and, and it's nearing the end and I'm writing and writing and writing I, I remember those last words and I can't see where they're coming in <laughs> mm. Am I going to miss them and go writing off into the cosmos forever <laughs> and never hit those words? And it wasn't until the, um, the first lunar landing that I saw an image of what writing is for me. There's that moment when they've taken off from the moon and they're going to dock with the, the mothership that's been going round and round. And it comes over the horizon and it goes click. If it doesn't go click, they've had it. But that always happens with the book. The book always finds that last sentence. Mm. And you said with, with the exception of Treacle Walker, so why well, was that? Treacle Walker wrote itself. It had the least revision and it's the only book that I haven't yet become dissatisfied with. Mm. Why do you think that is? I don't want to go there <laughs> uh, it, because it means either I've got it very wrong 
or I've finished. And uh, the thought of finishing is not something <laughs> I want to contemplate. Well, you have said a few times that you're finished um, and then not finished and written something else. So I wonder if, if now you've accepted that you might never finish. <laughs> Are you working well, on something now? Yes, and I won't, won't say a word about it. Okay, sure. <laughs> but that's interesting that you, yeah, you're you're working on something again. Yeah. What was it like having Chica Walker shortlisted and longlisted, of course, for the Booker? You obviously, you know, you're saying you. It sounds like you feel like it's. Um, you, you sort of felt immediately that it was one of the best things you've done. So perhaps you weren't surprised in some ways. Surprised? A lot of people felt that it was overdue. Well, I, I have no opinion on that. Uh, I do have an opinion, which I think it is safe to say now, that I'm ambivalent about book prizes. And in the particular case, I'm delighted that it ended up where it did, because it meant that a number of extremely able people, sensitive and qualified readers, had spent a lot of time over a large number of books, reading seriously with experience and depth, and had arrived at six books that they could say that in this year, these six books are really worth looking at. Now that I go along with wholeheartedly, but I am queasy about being a best book because all books are different. And the analogy I would make is to say that you can have an astertion, which is a lovely flower, and you can have a rose, which is a lovely flower. But an astertion is not better than a rose, and a rose is not better than a flower. Mm -hmm. And an elephant and a whale are both highly successful and powerful mammals. Mm -hmm. but they can never compete. Sure, yeah. And that is my attitude, my ambivalence towards uh, saying one book is better than all the others. Because in the end, no matter how good the uh, readers are, the interaction between a text and a reader's mind is subjective. Mm. Yeah. At that, at, uh at that level, it's subjective. Definitely. And actually, I think that's particularly true of a book like Treacle Walker, which I have to say, I, <laughs> I'm i not sure I fully understand all of it. But I, I think I hope that's part, part of the point, which is that and also it's a, it's a wonderfully short and, and re-readable book. So I've since reading it, I've dipped back into it and thought, well, that's a lovely page. I'm just going to see if I can think again about what I think is happening right here and now and what is happening to Joe and I wonder if if that's I know you said that you sort of it sort of almost happens to you the book at us after a certain point but it's I wonder if that's part of it that you enjoy creating these things that can connect with different readers in different ways and with you yourself in a different way because they don't have a sort of very very clear restricted narrative meaning oh, oh yes and, and here I, I do pontificate and uh, I'd be prepared to be taken apart by somebody else. But I, I feel that if a book is worth reading, it is a creative act between the reader, whom the author never knows, and the text, which the author should know. 
but because I've, I've survived long enough, I've had it happen so often that uh, people have said they've been enthused by something which for me was just a, a connecting passage from A to B. A and B being things that interested me and which completely left the reader cold, mm. but the connecting bit excited them. So uh, I learned that early on, that if a book is worth reading, it's an open hand being presented to the reader. It's not didactic. It's, uh, I have no time for didactic fiction, which points a finger and says, this is what you will believe. This is how it is. Mm-hmm. There's, there's room for that, but it's not my kind of writing. Mm. You don't actually read fiction much yourself at all, though, do, do you? Why is that? Because you are... You are clearly very well read, um, and you you know you've had a strong literary education. So mm. why do you why do you choose not to read fiction now? I'm a magpie, <laughs> and sometimes I I have uh, a good idea, and then remember where I read it, and I'm very afraid. This is my neurosis. It's a neurosis. Okay, I. I'm terrified of having an original idea which turns out to be somebody else's. And the, the other side of that is uh, I've learned that there are only a few original stories anyway. Hmm. It's just different ways of working them. Yes, which is especially true of things like mythology and uh, yeah. and, and and fantasy, which I, I know you're, you've said you're not necessarily keen on the word fantasy for some of your novels, but that that area of fiction and storytelling is um it's all about repurposing in some ways isn't it yes well uh mythology as i understand it and interpret it is the stripping away of the historical trappings such as the vietnam war and uh showing the eternal reality behind it all and fantasy I don't like the word fantasy because it's associated with make-believe. And for me, it's not. It's a, it's a, it is a, a subsection of mythology. It's another stratum of the truth. So I, I, don't, I know what fantasy means for nearly 100% of the population. But for me, I don't write fantasy. I write metaphor. So you're, I, th- I think you turned... 88 on the day of the actual Booker yeah. um, Prize. Is that right? It was, yeah. Well, happy, happy birthday for recently. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're 88. You've written 10, 10 novels and many yeah. other books. And you're writing another one. You obviously have, a, a you know, you've experienced writing and reading and publishing over many decades. I wonder what piece of advice you might have for listeners who don't find your earlier piece of advice about just getting on with it quite as easy as all that. I wonder if there are people who have, who have a great idea and really desire a career in publishing, what you might say to them about letting how to let that story really get into their heads and onto the page. I'm wary of answering that, but I, 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 I'll, I'll do my best. Because I landed on my feet, and I never had trouble with finding a publisher. I've never had that 
uh, initial success followed by a period in the desert of the world. I've had an interior desert, but not exterior yes. desert. Yes. My advice would be to do what I did, but to do it for now, and that is to write what is in you. Don't go around asking people what you should write. Write what is in you. Then get hold of the current copy of the Writer and Artist Yearbook and will give you all the information that's relevant to uh, getting published today. Because if you tried it my way, um, it would be a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, different time. Thank you so much for listening to Write Off. Do come find me to chat on Twitter, where I'm at Francesca Steele, and Instagram, where I'm at Francesca Steele Writes. I'll put that in the show notes. If you enjoyed Write Off, please do share it with others, and please, please, please consider leaving a review on the iTunes app, which really helps other people find the podcast. Thanks, and see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.